Set in a post-apocalyptic Italy, Mondo Cane tells the story of two boys who join a gang to survive, only to have their friendship put to the test by its charismatic leader. A hit at the Venice Film Festival, Cine Europa calls it an entertaining, dystopic work that draws from John Carpenter to Lord of the Flies. And Vanity Fair says, Oliver Twist meets Blade Runner in the dusty and industrial world of Mondo Cane. The film opens May 20th at the Angelica Film Center in New York and coming soon to select cities. More info at cinemamadeinitaly.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. After last year's Midsummer Fest, the 2022 edition of the Cannes Film Festival is settling back into its regular seasonal rhythms. Film Comment will be on the ground at cinema's grandest annual event, reporting on all the cinematic excitement with the help of our On the Cross Set crew of contributors. To kick off the festivities, we welcomed Film Comment contributing editor Jonathan Romney and critic and Film Comment contributor Jessica Kiang to dig into the lineup. We talked about the history of the festival and how it's changed over the years, before discussing some of the films we're most excited to see, including David Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future, Claire Denis' The Stars at Noon, Jersey Skolomowski's EO, Kelly Reichardt's Showing Up, and many others. Don't forget to subscribe to the Film Comment Letter today for early access to our daily CAN coverage, including interviews, dispatches, and podcasts. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to our first Cannes podcast of 2022. We're really excited because we are going to be reporting on the podcast from Cannes this year with a mix of podcasts and dispatches and interviews. And we thought, what better way to kick it off than bring two of our favorite film comment contributors and Cannes veterans and just festival veterans. I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and We'll be talking with them about what to expect in this year's CAM. So, Jonathan, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, hello, I'm Jonathan Romney. Uh, and? Uh, well, I don't know. Uh, it, speaks, I, it speaks for itself. Uh, it speaks for itself. Like, I, uh, the name's I mean, Romney, Jonathan Romney. Romney. The name's Romney, Jonathan Romney. <laughs> I, can't, I can't raise my eyebrow like Roger Moore used to be able to. But, um... Oh, you do it pretty well. No, I can I can smirk. <laughs> the smirk you have down. Yeah, yes, yeah, that's yeah. True. yeah. Uh, well, Jonathan, you'll be traveling to the festival as you do every year. And... I will. Um, I have to say, the first time I ever went, I shared a taxi with someone who told me that it was his 35th year. And I thought, <laughs> oh, my God, 35 years. And suddenly I realized, now looking back, I realized that was 1992. And, you know, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Now uh, I'm going to be that person in the cab with you, and yeah, <laughs> and someday I will I will tell this anecdote on a podcast yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on the on the metaverse or whatever we with you them, hopefully yeah. on your sixty on your sixty seventieth anniversary. Yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a beautiful passing of the torch that's going on here. Yeah, it's very if I'm touching. still if I'm still alive anywhere, it will be in the metaverse. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Jessica, we, thank you for joining us. Uh, you're very welcome, Kiang, Jessica Kiang, um, and uh, with the I'm, eyebrow, uh, with the eyebrow, yes, with the eyebrow, with eyebrow. Um, and I, this will only, I think, be my seventh or eighth can. I can't only. quite work it out. Mm. Yes. Well, we also, I mean, do are we even counting the one, the the pandemic one, the online one? And anyway, so um, yes, it'll, it's it's uh, some number, um, less than ten. And uh, I will be covering this can for variety. So the idea of today's podcast, as I said, was to just give our listeners a preview of what to expect at Cannes this year, what's different, what's new, what's exciting. And, you know, a selfishly a way for me to prepare for Cannes with your help and for you to tell me what to watch and how, you know, how to go about this festival that I've heard is a monster. So I thought maybe we could start by just talking about the different sections. You know, I think the sections maybe work a little differently than at a lot of other festivals. Two of them, from my understanding, are independent sidebars, the Director's Fortnight and Critics Week. Uh, maybe, you know, one of you could start off by just talking about what each section really represents and what you go looking for um, in each every year. 
it's been interesting. Uh, the Directors Fortnight, which you're right, is is a is a separate thing that runs parallel, um, and is actually you know takes place in a different venue. Um, so that's one one thing to note. Um, you have to uh, factor in different uh, walking times to get to to Directors Fortnight. Um, also the weirdly handy um, badge hierarchy thing doesn't work in directors fortnight so but although actually now that now that we have ticket booking systems i don't know if, if it's if the, all of that has gone out the window a little bit which is probably a good thing because can can be a very hierarchical festival uh, in not a good way and the ticket booking resolves that because no longer standing in line no longer standing in okay. line basically yeah. yes you, you have a reserved seat um, so, uh, but like recently, um, I suppose in the first the first few years that that I started coming to to Cannes, I was always really taken aback by the by how directors' fortnight really during that period actually really became this uh, had this, had this incredible resurgence, I think, and really um, started to find its its feet. Um, and there were times when it would certainly, I think, have. Uh, totally outstripped the the Uncertain Regard sidebar, which is probably the, the the sidebar of of the official competition to which it is most uh, often compared. Um, but then, for the last couple of years, um, Uncertain Regard has been really strong, and I think that this one this year is is a, another example of that. I'm really excited. I'm actually almost more excited about the Uncertain Regard selection this year than I am about the main competition. Um, and concomitantly, I think that. Uh, the director's fortnight selection on paper is not quite as exciting as it has been in years past. Yeah, the strange thing about Uncertain Regard is this, I mean, the title for a start, it's, mm -hmm. it's the idea that, you know, each film in there is, well, it's got a certain way of looking at things. Yeah, there's something about it. It's not bad. It's okay. So, you know, the title itself suggests that these films are somehow not essential. And, and in some years, you know, there will be some things in there that absolutely are essential, absolutely the best things in the festival. I always think of it as sort of like a sidelong, you know, like, yeah, a certain regard. Yeah. <laughs> with, that, with the Roger Moore eyebrow. Indeed. I, I think we've, we've often held it in uncertain regard, I think is, is actually kind of, kind of perfect. <laughs> but the thing about Director's Fortnight, similarly, it can be really interesting and, and it has launched huge names and it has also retained big names so sometimes it will have really major names who have been around the festival for a while and then they may turn up in director's fortnight mm. do you know i mean this might be like some inside information but i've always wondered like some of these films that are, that appear in director's fortnight seem certainly like they would be worthy of inclusion in the main slate yeah like pietro marcello and mia hansen love are in this year's director director's fortnight which i mean i haven't seen the films yet so I can't speak to their quality but these are certainly you know directors one could expect in competition no no you know there are people who will tell you every year that they are privy to all the secret dealings backstage and I don't think anyone really gets the whole story but sometimes oh no Jonathan we all get the full story it's only you who does uh, <laughs> well I'm, I'm enlightened now um, but you know I remember you know people like uh, Spike Lee and Vim Fenders and names like that have turned up in uh, director's fortnight when they've already been very famous and you know so Mia Hansa Love for example this year uh, one of the things about director's fortnight is Every year it will give you the single most beautiful minute in the festival because they have this beautiful trailer which has gorgeous piece of music and it's a montage of great moments, great films from the past, some that you recognise, some you won't at all, but a very, very delicate piano music and they change it very slightly every year and it's done with such elegance and charm and grace. It's just, you know, the best thing you see in Cannes every year, and and they're on uh, YouTube. Some of the old ones you can you can find them, but but they're and but but they also show you you know they flash up names of some of these directors, and you know they're all there. You know the great names through the ages. So the idea somehow that you know forget any idea of directors thought like being a sort of B list section. It really really is when it's good. It's fantastic. I mean, and also, I mean, once you start coming uh, a little bit more, you will find this out. But but there is all, always lots of sort of backstage um, whispers and rumors about the possibly rather antagonistic relationship that exists between the official competition um, led by Thierry Femo and um, the um, directors' fortnight. So there, there often is 
a certain degree of, of um, uh, apparently of, of horse trading that goes on and, and people and people being peaked. I, I know there was one particular big title last year that was, it, it did end up, it did go to, to um, I shouldn't say end up, but it did go to Directors Fortnight specifically because the director in question wasn't offered a competition slot and was put into Uncertain Regard instead and was uh, didn't think that that was where the film belonged. So so that so there's a lot of, of that kind of wrangling that goes Are on. Are you able to reveal this title? Um, well, last year it was apparently it was the the the, the fate of the souvenir part two. Wow. Okay, uh, that's a big one. That's yeah, a, okay. okay. The other thing that's worth saying is that both directors Fortnite and Critics Week, which is the other smaller sidebar, are the ones which are really public friendly. Uh, and certain regard is a bit more public friendly than uh, competition, but the ones that I. I, I believe are easier to get to if you're members of the public are Critics Week and Directors Fortnight, which are much more kind of low key in the way they, they're presented and much more friendly in a way, certainly without any of the formality. And people will often, uh, you know, go and see as much of those as they possibly can. And there is a sense that, you know, people are turning up because they love cinema rather than wanting to bathe in, you know, the glory and folly of the red carpet. Mm, it's true, and it's it's it is actually one thing that you will notice. I mean, that can for me certainly it is the most it's the most press oriented festival. The actual the, the main competition itself, the official selection, I should say, itself. So even rather than like you know even at Berlin or at, at at Venice, you get a sense of you know actual punters being able to go and get their tickets for more or less anything. In in Cannes, that is different. Again, it is very stratified in that way and. Mostly you will uh, come across the, I'm sure you've seen pictures of them, um, the, the hopeful youngsters hanging outside the premieres in their tuxedos and ball gowns, holding up raggy bits of paper, asking for key tickets for whatever it is that, that's happening that night. Um, and that seems to be the only way that most people can actually get to see any of these things that members of the public can. So it's really not a very public friendly festival, um, except for those sidebars, as Jonathan was mentioning. But that is precisely what makes it such a... Uh... Such an event. Yeah. And the sidebars are good because there's every chance that you're going to get to discover something extraordinary. I remember a few years ago, it was on, you know, I think it was a Thursday afternoon or something. And no one really knew anything about this film, but it was the first film. It was Raw by Julio Ducourneau and it was an absolute, you know, explosion. And, um, you know, there's always a chance you go to one of those sections, you may not know very much about the film ahead, but you have every chance of seeing something really extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, we, everybody has stories like that. I, I Mine is Embrace of the Serpent, probably, just, just going into this, like, completely obscure movie and that no, nobody had really heard of the director before and just being absolutely blown away and, um, and you know, really getting to that sense of, of excitement and discovery. Mm. And also directors Fortnite is non-competitive, right? And all the others, I believe, are eligible for various prizes. Yeah, they do have yeah. prizes, but they're not they're not prizes in the same way. There isn't a jury yet. Right. This is maybe a naive sort of question, but uh, you know, the founding of the Directors Fortnight is obviously famous. It was founded by the French uh, Directors Guild after the Cannes Film Festival was cancelled in 1968 in solidarity with striking workers. Do you have a sense of if any of that spirit, you know, still kind of animates Directors Fortnight in any way, this kind of radical, you know, anti like institution spirit that I guess gave it gave it birth? Well, Jonathan should definitely answer that because I think he was there. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I wish. Um, uh, burn. <laughs> I'm not, you know what, I'm not getting, I've, I've never got that sense of kind of enduring radicalism there, although sometimes Director's Fortnight, I guess, does pay homage to its roots with the inclusion of some interesting political filmmaking. So uh, they had a few years ago, the massive three-part uh, Miguel Gomez film, The Arabian Nights, which was his response to the uh, Portuguese economic crisis. And they also, uh, I'm pretty sure it was that section, had a film called The Nowhere Factory. Oh, I love that one. Which was a Portuguese about, about uh, you know, the workers seizing control of, yeah. So um, I think uh, I think there are, let's say, trace elements of 
68 in there, but... But I mean, I think, I think yeah, I, I think you could also just chalk that up to it being in France. I mean, because there's there's trace elements of that in, in the main competition. Often there's often like, you know, measure of a man and that Vincent Van Donfilm, those sort of socially aware um, uh, French French uh, films about socialism or about, you know, factory workers or whatever it is. But not, not socially aware, capital S, capital A, in the way that Berlin is often socially aware in a kind of... You know, here's more here's more healthy broccoli for you. Mm, tokeny, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I think that's that's a really great overview. Um, I'd love to also know specifically this year's lineup. You know, what was your what's been your first impression? What's looking different? What's looking exciting to you? Yeah, once again, I thought the competition looks a bit quiet uh, on the Asian front. There, there are certain years where it used to be, there used to be a very strong Asian presence and it's there, but perhaps not as forcefully as it has been in the past. Um, for the last few years, it's been quite loaded generally with big names, which is a problem if you hope to get to the other sections, because really, if you're, if you're stuck hanging around the Palais, having to chalk up all these A-listers, then you have less chance um, of seeing, uh, you know, new discoveries in other sections. I don't know. It looks like it looks like a promising. It looks like a healthy competition. Uh, although I have to say, there are also these sections, like the you know the special screenings and out of competition sections, which have become you know just the kind of glamorous showcase for stuff that I probably you know won't be in a hurry to see. I mean, you know, Top Gun Maverick. I have to say, I've, I've never even seen the original, so I don't think I'll, I'll, I'll race to see the, the new one. I'm not really sure. I mean, what, what is that section for? You know, it's for the glamour and it's for the red carpet. I mean, I, I think it has more of a, of a place than Cannes Premier, which was, which was the new uh, innovation, which actually seems to me even a, a further watered down version of special screenings. I, don't, I really don't know what Cannes Premier is doing. Is Elvis also one of the special screenings, I think? Uh, Elvis is out of competition. There's also that Jesse Eisenberg movie from Sundance that... Oh, really? Yeah, I believe that's in some section. I'm trying to remember which one. I think it's in Critics Week. Yeah, some, a few Sundance films do turn up. Zombie-like. And sometimes, you know, they're quite a draw and sometimes they're very interesting to catch up with, but they're not necessarily the ones that everyone is is rushing to see. Oh, it uh, it's opening the... Critics Week section, which is um, making me rather suspicious, but skeptical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, I guess they need a Hollywood premiere uh, as much as anyone else. Maybe. I mean, but also, don't worry, you're not going to get to see any Critics Week films. I mean, <laughs> no. I, would lo- I would love to say, I mean, I'm with the best will in the world, with the absolute, you know, with tanked up with caffeine pills and, you know, with your rigorous schedule done ahead of time where you're seeing five movies a day, you still cannot possibly get to everything that you want to get to. And, and, and it's, it's a real shame, but some of those sidebars are the ones that then suffer that, you know, you really, you just, you just don't get time to. Mm. So what are on top of you know your respective lists hmm. uh well for me it's um it's my 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 movie daddy who doesn't realize he's my father um david cronenberg so i'm very excited about about uh crimes jessica such a disturbing i mean i'm sure <laughs> the man seems smart and great but <laughs> yes. no he's my dad he's my, dad. my movie dad uh-huh um does that uh, make you brandon's sister <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, I am. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to share. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so I'm really excited about that. I also, especially because um, I just heard today that apparently he himself has said that he's expecting many, many walkouts within the first five minutes of his film. Yeah, I was yes. just reading that. He oh, also God. said that it's, that it's very funny. Okay. But not, but not only funny, he said. Okay. I'm really looking forward to the to the part. This is all competition stuff I'm talking about here. So the, the Park Chan Wook film, um, uh, just because love Park Chan Wook. Um, I think um, 
I'm, I have high hopes for um, The Eight Mountains, which is the Felix van Groningen film, because I'm a person who tries to pretend that beautiful boy didn't happen and that he has therefore a relatively unspotted record. Um, but I think he's a really interesting director and he's co-directing this with his partner. So um, I think this, this, that might and be And what's a, it about? Just people might I think not it's, know. It's a, it's a father-son story, but okay. it's also, and it stars um, uh, Luca Marinelli, is in it. Oh, sold. So exactly, yeah. it'll be something nice for the ladies to look at. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that um, I'm actually very excited about Holy Spider, the Ali Abbasi film. I don't Me know too. if you guys saw Border, um, which was his his last one. I, I wasn't possibly quite as sold on Border as, as everybody else, but I think he's a really, really interesting filmmaker, mm -hmm. and I love the sound of this one. It's kind of basically it sounds like a a Jack the Ripper story, except on on the streets of Tehran. So yeah. um, sounds really interesting. I also really liked his first film, Shelley, as well. So uh, I'm 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 all in on that one. Yeah, I I just want to also uh, you know hype up uh, Holy Spider, which I haven't seen obviously, but Border was just very exciting. I thought mm -hmm. uh, kind of queer sci-fi tale that you don't often see. I think in these kinds of festival settings, like it was a an art house film, but also very excitingly genre oriented in a cerebral way. So yeah, looking forward to this one. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's, I mean, Christian Munju. Uh, I'm I'm there for Christian Munju no matter what he does. Is this his first film since graduation? First new feature since graduation? Yes, I think it is, isn't it? And graduation was 2016, so it's been it's been a minute. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. And, and interesting, I was just reading that this one, which is called RMN, this is um produced by the Dardens, who also then themselves have a film in the competition. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, it's been a while since I've been particularly excited about a Dardens movie. But um, you know, if you're if you're a betting person when it comes to awards and things, don't ever count out the Dardens. <laughs> this is this is primarily a betting a podcast for gamblers. Yeah. <laughs> awards well, gamblers. Uh, I know that many of us were left cold by their previous venture, Young Ahmed, but you know, we have enough of a legacy that we will give them another chance. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm, of course, yes, we're we're nice like that. Yeah. Um, and then obviously we have you know Kelly Reichardt and uh, and Claire Denis. I mean, you have some heavy hitting women in there, um, which is fantastic. And so exciting that they had. I mean, Claire just had a feature at the Berlinale, so it's you know been hardly any time. And this is the J Dennis Johnson uh, adaptation of a Dennis Johnson book. Um, famously, I believe Robert Pattinson was replaced with Joe Alwyn, which didn't that same thing happen with the souvenir part two, or am I getting things mixed up? Like wasn't Robert Pattinson supposed oh to be God. in the souvenir films and then Joe Alwyn was cast? I, I mean, I don't know if he was directly replaced, but. I think you're right. I, I had forgotten about that completely, but I, yeah, I think you're right. So <laughs> Joe so Alwyn funny. is just basically the, the new, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just everybody because everybody wants to hang out with Taylor Swift, right? Uh, I don't think Claire Denis <laughs> gives a toss about hanging out with Taylor Swift. Oh, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past her. <laughs> she might be. Sure. Uh, you could see her being a big fan. Yeah. <laughs> um, has anyone read the book Stars at Noon? I was just curious. I'm trying no. to read it. Um, I'm going to try and read it on my flight. But no, I have to say, uh, I am, I am a big Dennis Johnson fan. I've read a mm. lot of his books. I haven't read this one. Uh, I haven't been able to get hold of it. I'm actually going to try and go to the library this week because there is a copy Same. of the British Library. Yeah. <laughs> But, um, you know, he's a great writer and um, I don't think he's been adapted since Jesus' Son, which is a fantastic film. But he's a great writer and, and yeah. you know, really underrated and it'd be really interesting because Claire Denis, I think, has a, that sort of sense of, you know, the elliptical, which really you know, is, is absolutely him. So we'll see. Um, I, I have to say, I'm also very keen on the Cronenberg film because, you know, it's, it looks like Cronenberg doing Cronenberg again for the first time in quite a while. In eight years, right? Maps of the Stars was 2014. Yeah, but I mean, really, to, but, but doing the full Cronenberg, yeah, making a really Cronenbergian So film. even longer, yeah. <laughs> yes, and I've actually made a point of not looking at the trailer for this one. Uh, I, I always don't look at trailers, you know, whenever I can, before I can, I like to come to things completely fresh. Uh, 
But I think the interesting connection will be that, you know, years ago he was talking about a film about artists called Painkillers. And apparently this is very directly related to or a version of Painkillers. And also, I don't know if anyone read his book, his novel, and I've forgotten the title, but it's on my shelf in the other room. And actually, the novel was very strange because he brought it out a few years ago and it felt like someone doing a David Cronenberg. It felt like it wasn't really David Cronenberg, but it felt like someone trying to write a Cronenbergian novel. So, I, you know, and I suspect it may be in that mode because that was also about, you know, artists and theorists and... Consumed it, was the name of it? Yeah, I think so. And just I'm just reading like this log line that I found online uh, of painkillers, which so I'm assuming it's sort of similar, but exploring the world of performance art in an anesthetized society where pain is the new forbidden pleasure and yeah. surgery and self-mutilation being performed in public and on camera have come to be regarded, regarded as a new sex. Indeed. That's exciting. And I believe, yeah. yeah, so Leah Seydoux plays like one of these artists. It's what, from what I've gathered. And uh, Kristen yeah. Stewart plays yeah. a FBI invest organ crimes investigator. Yeah, they do have, an, they do have an organ crimes department, yeah. I believe. Um, so, I mean, the other thing that's going to be interesting that's possibly related to this is uh, Kelly Reichardt's film Showing Up, which has Michelle Williams as a New York artist. And, you know, I have never seen a film that remotely gives you any real sense of what it is that artists, especially, you know, modern New York artists do all day long. And I think if anyone's going to to give a sense of that in any kind of real way, I suspect it may be Kelly Reichardt. Showing up is the name yeah. of the film. Yeah, that there is a wild card in competition, which could be interesting, um, which is uh, the film by Yeshi. Skolimowski, who is 84, and he's apparently made a film about a donkey called, well, it's, it says here E.O., but I think it's Eeyore. <laughs> yes, it's Eeyore, basically. Yeah. Made a Winnie the yeah. Pooh movie. And I think it's basically his quasi-remake of Oazar, Balthazar. But he's really interesting because he completely disappeared. He was very big in English language cinema in, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, actually, right up to the eighties, yeah, because he made he made films like Moonlighting, which was great, and then he he disappeared. But then he had a comeback with a couple of films that I didn't think were extraordinary, but I really liked uh, that last one he did, Eleven Minutes, which was a sort of bizarre, very very contrived, but but it kind of totally contrived, but it had me go. It's one of those kind of countdown to all these people are going to converge, and then there will be an explosion or someone will fall out of a window or something like that. Who knows? I mean, it could be fascinating. Just to present the counterpoint of that, I, I mean, I, I, I thought 11 minutes was a disaster. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm very wary of this. I remember seeing it, it, it played in Venice, I think. And um, I, that was just one where there was, a, there was a round of applause at the end. And it was really one where I was turning around in my seat, trying to look at who's applauding <laughs> and, and commit their names to memory and never talk to them again. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll go on the record as saying I'm excited for this one. I like Skolomowski. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I wanted to shout out Kirill Serebrenikov, who had a film last year called Petrov's Flu. I don't think it has had a U.S. release yet, but it was in last year's Cannes lineup that I really loved, but somehow I think got a little just swept under the radar. And I just thought it was fantastic. It was this adaptation of a graphic novel, and it just somehow was so timely because it was this dystopian flu, um, you know, and it just had this just wonderful sense of uh, abandon and scale and it totally imaginative. I mean, it was one of the few films that I thought 
captured what it feels like to read a graphic novel in live action. It kind of propelled from one episode to the other. Uh, just very, very uh, original and idiosyncratic, I thought. And so I was thrilled to see that he has another film in this year's lineup, also because you know, he's had legal troubles uh, in Russia. He was on under house arrest for a while. I'd heard uh, recently when his film screened in New York, I know he was not really available even for anything virtual you know um so i'm i'm hoping this is a good sign that he's been able to get new work out i think he's in paris now i believe but it it, it does promise to be a controversial film probably not in itself but because uh so many people have called for a complete boycott of russian cinema including even those filmmakers who are against putin even dissidents yeah, yeah. And, and what's interesting about this is that uh sergey Luznitsa has been kicked out of the ukrainian film academy because he does not support a complete boycott you know he feels that the anti-putin voices should be heard and the the controversy is is kind of the, the anti is raised by the fact that Loznitsa is there this year with his new film and and the Ukrainian Film Academy have also accused him of being cosmopolitan meaning he is not sufficiently Ukrainian and there will clearly be a lot of anger about the fact that he is appearing in a festival at which there is also a Russian filmmaker present but the point is you know he he's arguing that that you know, you need a multiplicity of voices and, you know, the boycotting is obviously a very complex topic. And how do you how do you really go about sifting the, the anti-Putin filmmakers from people who are, you know, I mean, everyone who's making film in, in Russia, whether or not they're against Putin, is going to be receiving state money anyway. You know, that's that's the paradox. Um, so there could be there could be some heat around both Serebrenikov's film and Loznitsa's. Uh, and, and the Loznitsa film is another archive documentary uh, following his film about Babiyar last year. The Natural History of Destruction is the name of the new one, yeah. Yeah, which is inspired by uh, W.G. Sebald's um, text about, you know, the Allied bombing of Germany. And the Serebrenikov film is called Tchaikovsky's Wife. And it's about the composer, uh, the 19th century Russian composer. Yeah, about his relationship with his wife and his ambiguous sexuality, as it was, I believe, regarded them. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, 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 I'm too, I'm a huge fan of Petros Flew. I thought Petros Flew was fantastic. Really, I just really enjoyed it. Um, and really, as you're saying, it really is a film that feels like almost like infectious, like livid with disease, even all of its uh, its visuals and everything. I thought it was just a, such an exciting film. So, I'm, I mean, I'm hoping the fact that this is a period thing, whatever doesn't make it, doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be more staid. I mean, Sarah Branagraf has been around for a while and and I think Petrov's Flu has, is by far my favorite of his films. So um, we'll see if, it's, if it was an outlier um, or if it's uh, sort of going to a slightly more sedate style. Um, the other one we should we should mention as well is is Ruben Ostland because obviously he's a, a previous uh, Palme d'Or winner, um, and Triangle of Sadness does just sound like it's going to be a laugh no matter what. Um, it is, uh, and it's going, going to be like a, a great excuse for us to to watch beautiful people in beautiful locations for a while. Being mortified, I imagine, as exactly. always. And also yeah. being being able to to watch these people and in, enjoy their lifestyles, but also then look down on them, which is fantastic. Yeah, it has <laughs> stars Harris Dickinson, who I yeah. am really fond of. Um, yeah, he's he's right. been in some great films, and Woody Harrelson, which is Woody Harrelson. Fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the other opportunity for mortification in beautiful places is the <laughs> Albert Serra film. I think that one is going to be humiliation, not yeah. mortification. Well, it's uh, it's Bora Bora or uh, torment in the aisles, and you know it could be we could be suffering torment today. I mean, I'm, I'm very ambivalent about Albert Serra because uh, he has made you know, some of the most stultifyingly boring films ever. And I am, you know, an absolute adapt of slow cinema. And, uh, you know, but there's slow and there's Albert Serra's Birdsong. Uh, however, <laughs> I thought his film about um, Louis XIV with uh, Jean-Pierre Léo was absolutely extraordinary and mesmerising. And... You know, he always does it differently. Uh, I didn't get what he was doing at all with his last film, 
la liberté, which seemed to be, you know, which was about 18th century libertinism and seemed about people dogging, but with sedan chairs. So who knows? Who knows what this will be like? But, you know, he went he went to Tahiti and he made it. And that's a very kind of seems like quite a sort of flamboyantly Sarah-esque gesture. So we'll see. I was curious if what your expectations were for opening night. When I was booking my tickets, I it was kind of a little tough for me to get, you know, to ensure I would get there in time for opening night. And I, I was asking friends who had been there before. This was before the lineup had been announced. And they were all like, I think you can skip opening night. Like, you can catch it the next day. And if not, it's probably not going to be good. And that was a rarity. I know, I mean... Jonathan, I know you were a little mixed on Annette too, but... Yeah, I mean, there have been some great opening night films. Uh, don't ask me offhand what they were, but, you know, there have been a lot of times when it feels like an event and you're very happy to be there. This year, I don't know, because it's... What's it now called? Cut. I think it's now called Coupe. Final by, Cut? Oh, or is, or it's cut. now Did Cut? The I think it's just Coupe, yeah. And it, at one point it was called Z, God knows why, Z like Z, which they had to change because of, you know, Putin's uh, slogan. So it's um, it's by uh, Michel Hazanavicius, uh, of whom I like to say he's a lovely bloke, has an vicious bone in his body, kitching. <laughs> Um, you just couldn't resist that one, could you, Jonathan? Yeah, I could not. I could every year, every year. Um, and basically, it's his remake of that the, the no budget, massive Japanese hit, um, the, the kind of meta zombie comedy, One Cut of the Dead, um, which yeah, I, I thought was a massive bore. But the thing about it, it was incredibly cheap. And you can bet that the Hasnavicius version will not be incredibly cheap, which seems to defy the point. I mean, one of the things about Hasnavicius, I mean, I loved the artist at the time, but it's become apparent since that as a comic filmmaker, he doesn't really have what I would call, you know, a great sense of humor. I think there's a sort of mechanical aspect to his comedy, which is, you know, I don't think he's a natural comedian. And um, I, I'm slightly dreading what he's likely to bring to this, especially because uh, it it has Romain Duris, who I, I find a very kind of, you know, sort of showy, uh, narcissistic kind of star. And I've rarely liked him on screen. Um, I don't know what it's going to be like, but I just think, you know, we don't really need another zombie comedy, especially after that terrible, terrible Jim Jarmus one, which which opened Can, And, you know, I think let the zombies stay dead just for a few years. I thought that wasn't that bad. OK, the Jim Jarmus I quite enjoyed one, it. I quite liked it. I mean, I can't I have no idea how it would have played as opening night of Can, but the dead don't die was... Jonathan, don't hate on the zombies, okay? You will regret it someday. Uh, I'm not a, but I'm not a huge zombie movie fan. I did, I did quite enjoy the Dead Don't Die. I mean, I don't think it's any good, but I did kind of enjoy it. Um, but I, well, my my main issue with with um, with Cut now opening it is that I don't really know why when he why it is opening it. Uh, as Jonathan was saying, like there's there's been great opening films of Cannes. Um, again, can't really remember too many of them off the top of my head. But one of the things that sometimes makes a great opening film is that actually it's a hilariously bad film. So for me, in my in my era, the best opening film that there ever was was Grace of Monaco, which was just so hilarious. For listeners at home, Jonathan visibly rolled his eyes so much that his head swung back. <laughs> or, or Disgrace of Monaco, as it was known. Oh yeah, that was that was unbelievable. But it, I mean, it was amazing, but it really did bond the audience together. We were all in this together, um, and it was a little bit the same, not quite to the same degree, but a little bit the same when The Great Gatsby opened as well. Because I mean, The Great Gatsby, this ridiculously over lush three D Baz Luhrmann thing, and considering they have a Baz Luhrmann film here, Elvis, which looks like it might... I'm not going to lie. I actually, um, I've watched the trailer twice for Elvis now. It looks like a movie that I'm going to enjoy a lot, mainly because of Tom Hanks's <laughs> truly insane accent as to Colonel Tom Parker. I have no idea who 
approved of this. Clint, can you do a little impression? Like, what's it like? Life is hard. I can't even do it. No, we're cutting that. There's something German about it. Because, you know, Colonel Tom Parker was like, where was he from? I don't even remember. I don't know. He was Austrian, maybe. And he was an immigrant. And so, but he lived in the South. And now you have Tom Hanks in a fat suit doing like a note perfect impression of him with some kid playing Elvis singing Elvis songs. And does the kid get to wear a fat suit at the end of the film? I don't we don't get to that part in the in the but I would hope so. It remains to be seen. Or Tom um, Hanks just seamlessly transitions into late Elvis, the role of late Elvis. But I'm going to say I'm excited about it. Yeah, but I, I mean <laughs> that I really should have been the opening night movie. Exactly. That I yeah. think there was a real there was a real trick missed there. You in, can't in go wrong Park. with that. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. exactly. Do do we know like what Again, this is me asking about things that you guys probably are not necessarily privy to, but do we know what goes into the opening night selections? Um, not really. <laughs> is, it a tro- no. is it kind of a troll job? You know, they just keep us guessing every year or what? There does. It's another one of those things that, that rumors tend to circulate around. Um, and it is always, I mean, it has become a little bit like uh, Jonathan was saying earlier on about these these other sidebars, like the special screenings and out of competition and gala screenings and can premiere and midnight screenings and things. It, uh, a lot of, I think a lot of times, I, I think there, there might be uh, occasions where uh, even though it is a great honor, et cetera, that actually a filmmaker might not want their film to open, to be the opener, because it now has that kind of, uh, slightly, you know, glitzy but pointless, Great Gatsby, Grace of Monaco kind of hang to it. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's, it's. I don't think mostly, and, and even as you're saying yourself, you know, um, whether or not you should even bother coming for the first film. Like, so I think on, on those occasions when the, when the opening film is actually in competition, I think it's already slightly written off in most people's minds, probably not going to be a contender. Wanted to talk about a couple more films before we wrap up. So James Gray, Armageddon Time. That looks kind of exciting. Any are either a few, you know, James Gray fans? Is this going to be on your priority list? I've never got James Gray, partly because I'm not French. I mean, I don't understand quite why the French love him so much, but they do. He is, after all, James Gray. But um, it's, you know, I mean, he's a filmmaker who's been adopted by the French with with great passion. I mean, I've liked a couple of his films, but I've never really been able to get this idea of him being a great artist. I don't know. And I don't know what this one will be like. This one does seem to be kind of autobiographical. So it's different. In a weird way, I'm I'm kind of. I, I'm, I'm split down the middle. I, I really, I think, I think he's an incredibly accomplished filmmaker and having interviewed him a few times, he is g- genuinely one of the most delightful people you can talk to about movies. He's incredibly erudite. And I think a lot of that times that comes through in his filmmaking, but sometimes it comes through to an almost stultifying degree. And there are times sometimes when I really wish he would just like let loose and he would like let, let you know, sort of color outside the lines a little bit. Oh, you thought he wasn't letting loose with Ad Astra. Well, no, I mean, but even before then. So, I mean, I, I think he actually did it. He, he got closest to me with Lost City of Zed, which is a film I love. And I thought- I like that one too, a lot. And, and, I, yeah. and I really thought that that was going to sort of mark a new direction. And then Ad Astra, I was very disappointed by. Um, but this one, so this one seems, it's an interesting sort of new tack away from these sort of large, big budget sort of uh, science fiction or, you know, metaphysical explorations that he's done. And it is, does, it could possibly be him going back to his very, very first film, which was Little Odessa, which is also a film I really like as well, but in a very different register from the other things of his that I, that I particularly responded to. So I'm, I'm curious about it. I can't, I'm, I'm not sort of on tenter hooks for it, but I, I really, really hope to be, to be blown away. It'd be great. Yeah, it very much seems like a low key Low-key film, and based on the description mm. from the, from him, especially. I don't know how low-key a film with Anthony Hopkins and Anne Hathaway <laughs> and Jeremy Strong will be, but we'll see. Compared to Ad Astra, I mean, it is Earthbound, and it is in the United. It is in New Jersey, as opposed to uh, you know a colonial expedition. So the title is interesting, at least. Armageddon Armageddon time is what a Clash song? Is that yeah? 
So it, well, it's um, or is that a? It's a reggae song. Reggae song. I right? think they covered. Yeah. What's going on there, James? <laughs> I guess we'll we'll have to wait and find out. Maybe it was what he was listening to in the eighties. That would be my. That would be my guess. Mm. Another. We also. There's also a uh, Korea film, Broker, in competition. Yeah, starring Song Kang Ho, fresh, fresh off Parasite. I have to say, I did not like Shoplifters very much. Yes, I teared up while watching it, but no, I did not think it was a great film. I thought it was a bit overly schematic and cheesy. Uh, I've liked a lot of Koreeda stuff before. Um, this one, I mean, it's about like baby boxes, I believe. These boxes where people abandon children who are then adopted or taken up by others. So I think it will be tear-jerking and, you know, sweet and in the kind of melodramatic vein that, you know, we probably expect from him. But um, let's see. Yeah, I'm I'm always interested in seeing his work for sure. Absolutely. I, I do think it's funny as well, like a lot of the early materials, early press materials and stuff really did make it look like Drive My Car because it was a lot of the, the, the posters were of people in cars, you know, driving that kind of washed out sort of Japanese look now that is quite in. And then it also stars... Song Kang Ho, and I was just like, and it's from Hirokazu Koreeda. So I was like, really, they're they're going all out. They're like every single major Asian hit of the last however long is really represented here. So you know, this is this has really got to do that got to do the business. But I'm I'm kind of I'm with you on shoplifters. I mean, I like I like shoplifters. I think it's very difficult to dislike shoplifters. But I think also because I mean that year uh, shoplifters was up against. Well, in my mind, it was up against burning and and burning. Them didn't go away with uh, what it should have. I mean, because Burning should have won, won the Palm d'Or that year, to my mind. So yes, and and you know, it's unfair to compare those two films necessarily, but but it just felt like Shoplifters felt like the very like the easy thing to go for. It was like something that like for that for that jury, which I believe was headed by Kate Blanchett that year, it was it seemed like a slightly compromised choice. Um, and so yeah, and so I'm I'm you know. I, I I can't say I'm I'm wildly excited for this Koreeda, but um, but he he I mean it's it's all his stuff is always enjoyable and his children's performances are always excellent and I do love Song Kang Ho so I'll probably come out of it really loving it and and floods of tears of course. Something I'm very keen to see and I can't imagine for a minute what it's going to be like, but it's it's certainly going to be odd. I think it's going to be fascinating. Uh, Olivier Assayas has revisited his film Irma Vet as uh, an HBO. TV series um, and apparently it's going to be in eight episodes and apparently will be based or based on or structured around the original Fayard serial uh, Les Vampires in which the character Irma Vep appears and this time uh, rather than Maggie Chung it's going to be Alicia Vikander and one of my favorite French actors Vincent Marquenne is apparently going to be playing Fayard so it's it's not just a revisit, it's a revisit, you know, with another kind of meta level built in. And um, I think, you know, I suspect, given that it's Olivier Assayas, who has always been, you know, a really astute theorist of commercial American cinema, you know, he was one of the first people in 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 Kaye in in the 80s who who was saying, look, you know, we have to write about Star Wars, we have to write about Spielberg. And Top Gun. Indeed. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I think it's going to be really interesting how he takes on basically streaming culture, uh, because, of course, Fayyad is, you know, the grandfather of, of the uh, of long form TV, really. I know. I mean, I know some people are skeptical that, you know, Maggie Chung is not <laughs> replaceable um, and. It's always it's such a trend to turn movies into TV shows now. But I do, I am holding out hope for it because SAS is a, you know, the fact that he is himself doing it and the fact that it's referring back to the Fayyad original, it just gives me, you know, there's, there's enough there uh, to make it interesting. Um, another French film I think could really be fun is the new Content du Pure film because Dupieux, who basically started out kind of, you know, making weird films as a hobby in between, you know, making uh, fairly unlistable uh, 
techno music, uh, deliberately unlistenable techno music. That was his thing. He always said he wanted to make people suffer. But um, some of his early films are definitely, you know, they are they are some of the great conceptual one joke films. But they are kind of one joke films. But since he moved back to France from the states, he's been really on a roll and doing some fantastic things. And um, his film Mandibles was fantastic. The film he had in Berlin, incredible but true, was, was great. And he's, he's almost become like the pop Buñuel now. So his new film is called Smoking Makes You Cough. And it's about uh, a group of masked heroes who, who look like the, uh, the mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Uh, and they're called Tobacco Force. And uh, it's got a great French cast, including Adèle Exarchopoulos, Anaïs de Moussier, Alain Chabat, Vincent Lacoste, Blanche Gardin, etc., etc., etc. Benoît Poilvoort, of course, is Belgian. Um, it looks, yeah, it looks deranged as ever, but it could be, uh, it could be really, really fun. Yeah, can I just shout out a couple? Because I, 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 I did talk about how excited I was about Uncertain Regard and I haven't mentioned a single Uncertain Regard film. Yeah. Like two or three picks, yeah. Okay, a couple of things. Well, I mean, I think I'm I'm particularly looking forward to the uh, Agnieszka Szymczynska film, The Silent yes. Twins. She I've made liked... the lure, right? Yes. Which is fantastic, yeah. And then uh, subsequent to the lure, she made a film called Fugue, which for some reason went nowhere and I think is terrific. Oh, that's great. Yeah, really good, yeah. So I'm uh, really looking forward to that. Uh, Hleinor Palmason, the Icelandic director who did um, Winter Brothers and White White Day. I mean, I, I was a particular fan of Winter Brothers, which is just deeply weird. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to another dose of deep weirdness. And I do hear that this one, apparently even by his, on his, by his standards, is very strange. So uh, I, I can only, I can only, uh, I'm just dying to see that. There's also a film then by uh, Marie Kreutzer, who did a movie called The Ground Beneath Her Feet, which was in Berlin a few years ago, which I really liked. And I, um, the, my only reservation with it was like, I felt like the filmmaking was a little bit pallid, actually, and it could have been bumped up a bit. And from what I see of this one, this is a film called Corsage, and it stars Vicky Creeps. From what I see of this one, uh, I think that I think that 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 um, might have been entirely laid to rest that that uh, a concern. And and I also I'm just a, a huge Vicky Creeps fan, and I I'm hoping that she gets to to creeps it up big time in this one because I I found like she's she's such an unusual and and spiky and weird presence, and I think that some of her recent choices haven't necessarily shown that side of her. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and uh, also, yes, actually, then um, uh, one one of the choices that I didn't think worked so well for her was um, Mia Hansen loves Bergman Island, which I was not a fan of. That uh, Jessica, I sorry about that. But I yeah, will fight not, you on that one. Really, really not. Um, but Mia Hansen Love obviously has another film um, here and in in director's fortnight, um, and so that's one I'm really looking forward to because, again, aside from Bergman Island, actually, when when she's not working in English. When she's working in in French, I I tend to really adore her films, so I'm I'm really looking forward to that. So. Yeah, I also just mentioned the Lucien Castaing Taylor and Verena Paravel film. De humani corporis fabrica. Oh, that's got to roll off the tongue. Right? <laughs> De humani corporis. <laughs> well, you know they were con they were considering it for opening night, but then yeah, they were yeah. like, you know, the title is just kind of hard to. Play. You can see people turning up at the box office. Of their multiplex saying, "Can we have two for uh, for uh, oh fuck? I'll go to Doctor Strange yeah. too." Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's, it's probably Doctor Strange three. De humani corporis. <laughs> well, there is a multiverse of madness. So, in one of the multiverses, that definitely is the subtitle of the new Doctor Strange film. Right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm, so that should be interesting as well. Um, you know, their work is always surprising in some way. And, you know, th this is their first new feature since Kaniba. Uh, and before that was Leviathan, which, you know, um, was a very kind of important film um, for its time. And this one's all, you know, about bodies and bodies being cut up in operating rooms and hospitals. And I think it's going to be an interesting double feature with uh, the Cronenberg. <laughs> Yeah. And Jonathan, did you have any quick picks? I do. Yeah. Um well, well there are two new Ukrainian films by by new names. Uh one of them Panfia by Dmitro um let me get this right. Uh Sokoltiksky Sobchuk 
which I don't know anything about, except that it's about, uh, I've read a, a brief synopsis, that Pamphir is the name of the character. This one doesn't seem to be, like, unlike most recent Ukrainian films I've seen, it doesn't seem to be directly related to the, the, the Donbass conflict. You know, obviously we're going to get a lot more Ukrainian war films in the future if, you know, God willing, they can all get to make films. Um, the other one which is war related is a film called Butterfly Vision by Maxim uh, Nakonechny. And it's about, um, you know, a woman's traumatic experiences uh, in, in the war and after. Um, but it's interesting because it's co-written by uh, Irina Tsilik, who is a documentarist who made a really good film called The Earth is Blue as an Orange. And it's also, she has made her own first uh, fiction feature, um, which we're gonna be seeing later in the year. And it's very interesting because um, one of the actresses in it, whose name I have forgotten from, Natalia, it will come back to me, but she's also known as a playwright and a director in her own right, who also made a really strong film called Bad Roads. So I think, you know, we're seeing a very, very kind of tight knit Ukrainian community of filmmakers who are sort of working together. And Natalia Vorozhbit. Vorozhbit, yeah. Yeah. That's it. And, and, you know, they do, a lot of them do seem to be incredibly strong and interesting stylists. So, um, I think these films will be worth watching, not simply because we all should all be rushing to Ukrainian films right now, but because, you know, I think they promise to be uh, very powerful. And the other thing I'd flag up is um, the first film by the French writer, novelist, but autobiographer, Annie Ernaud, um, who wrote the book that um, The Venice Winner, Happening, was based on. She also wrote a fantastic book which is not autobiography, it's not a personal autobiography, it's a kind of autobiography of her generation called The Years. And what she's done in this film, which is called The Super Eight Years, which she's made with her son, uh, David Ernaud Briand, it's basically based on her family's Super Eight home movies. And, you know, knowing how brilliant she is as a writer um, and, you know, the kind of social perceptions she has, uh, I think it's going to be really fascinating. Yeah, and for what it's worth, I will just say, just to add to um, uh, Butterfly Vision, I, for, for what it's worth, it's one of those films that even, I haven't seen anything of it, I don't, I don't know anything really about it, but On the Grapevine, it is the one that seems to be picking up some buzz um, in, in advance, so people seem to be very, very high in it already. Um, and there's, I mean, there are just a couple more, sorry, I'm, I know I'm keeping everybody, but Our like, flight. we haven't... Devika's flight is leaving soon. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, we should we should shout out Ennis Main, which is the Mark Jenkins film, which is in uh, Director's Fortnight. Um, and he was a, a, a director who made a film called Bait um, in this very sort of rustic manner. And, and I believe that uh, Ennis Main is done in, in, in much the same aesthetic style. Um, so that's that will definitely be one to look out for. I think it's going to be one of the sort of buzzier ones that will happen. Mia Hansen loves there. One Fine Morning is there in... Um, uh, Kanzen as well. And then there's the Pietro Marcello opener that you were mentioning, um, Devika, yes? Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, uh, starring Louis Garel. Yeah, and he's got a film, he's got a film himself somewhere. And I have to say, uh, I think he's a really strong screen presence. He's always, you know, he's always very likable and engaging. I have never, ever liked any of the films that he's directed, um, which seem incredibly slight and you know, narcissistic in a way, but I don't know, just there's a certain kind of grating kind of laid back French cinema, which which doesn't do it for me, which which is what he seems to do. But um, yeah, I, I, you know, he, I think he works better in front of the camera. Well, we'll have Garel on screen and behind the camera and we can judge. We can judge for ourselves where he should be. Yeah. Although um, he's he's invariably more fun than his dad, I'll say that. <laughs> uh, more fun, yeah, sure. And um, there's also the Five Devils, the Leia Misius film. I really liked her previous film, so I'm very much looking forward to that. You love that Misius to pieces. I, uh, 
I apologize for the 10 other films I wanted to shout out to, but if, if Jonathan's going to keep on doing that, we're going to have to. <laughs> too much, too much pun fodder in there for Jonathan. Uh, I think that's maybe a good note to wrap up. We'll, we'll be doing a podcast during the festival. We hope to have both of you again. So we'll actually, you know, have seen the films and talk about them a bit more. But this was really fantastic. Thank you. This was like a great deep dive. And hopefully, you know, listeners have a good sense of uh, the festival before we get into it. Yeah, there's some real gems that you guys have picked out, I think, <laughs> hopefully. We'll hope they're gems, but uh, definitely some some films that may have otherwise flown under the radar. Yeah. And if they're not, expect the brickbats. Yes. Mm. Yes, yeah. and we can work out who who was right about the Jersey Skolomowski. Uh, <laughs> next <yes>. talk. <laughs> we're, we're keeping score. Yeah. We're keeping score. All right. Good. See you soon then. Yes. yes. See you soon. See Safe you travels. I'm Jessica, and, and David Coe will see you over a rose. Indeed. Yes. I look forward to it. <laughs> All right. All right. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. Set in a post-apocalyptic Italy, Mondo Canet tells the story of two boys who join a gang to survive, only to have their friendship put to the test by its charismatic leader. A hit at the Venice Film Festival, Cine Europa calls it an entertaining, dystopic work that draws from John Carpenter to Lord of the Flies. And Vanity Fair says, Oliver Twist meets Blade Runner in the dusty and industrial world of Mondo Canet. The film opens May 20th at the Angelica Film Center in New York and coming soon to select cities. More info at cinemamadeinitaly.com.